0: You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. We need, and we haven't done this yet,
3: to centralize our public health
0: system. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. We have done exactly what needed to be done, which is provide and give an effective vaccine. The key for gun safety reform advocates is to think about
3: this in the long term. These times when change happen often brief, so you want to get as much accomplished as possible. This is KCBS
2: In-Depth.
3: For a while there it seemed like we might be on the verge of halting this pandemic for good but with the vaccine rollout now stalling and the delta variant growing more common the trend line is reversing and COVID case counts are beginning to creep back up once again welcome to kcbs in depth i'm keith Menconi, and today on the program We're going to take a closer look at this new rise in cases and also discuss why Bay Area health officials have taken the dramatic step of once again recommending we mask up indoors. Then a little bit later in the program, we'll also consider what can be done to keep the largest group of unvaccinated people safe, children under the age of 12.
2: This represents the 10th most common cause of death and one of the major causes of hospitalization in kids.
3: First up, though, what this new spike in cases could mean for the Bay Area. For some insights, we're going to welcome back onto the program now Dr. Monica Gandhi. She, once again, is an infectious disease physician and professor of medicine at UC San Francisco. Dr. Monica Gandhi, good to have you back. Thank you. So we actually had you on just a few short months ago, um, around the time that the CDC relaxed its masking guidelines. And it seemed at that time like we were on a glide path to post-pandemic normalcy. Uh, Here we are uh, now, though, in July and nationally, case counts have doubled in recent weeks and uh, we're seeing similar increases in many parts of the Bay Area as well. So help put this into perspective for us. I I know that the message back in May was never, you know, the pandemic is over. Nothing bad is ever going to happen again. Uh, Nobody was saying that, obviously. But are you at all surprised by the speed at which things seem to be turning for the worse?
0: You know, um, I'm not. And I will say that essentially we didn't think this Delta variant was going to come along, um, which is too bad. And it is a variant that is extremely fit. You know, actually the word transmissible is, um, it's based on your virology language, but it's definitely more fit. So it's becoming the most dominant strain. And then second, and I think this is really important. If you look at the messaging from the California DPH and Uh, Governor Newsom when he opened, the the statement was we actually expect cases to go up, which they will, because there's more mingling of human beings. The question is, and the tremendously important thing to track right now, is what is happening with hospitalizations, which is why we having a devastating pandemic to begin with, meaning um, we never would have even noticed this coronavirus if it didn't cause severe disease. So what is happening with hospitalizations in our state As we've seen cases go up, what is the difference between cases before vaccination and cases after vaccination? And I'd be happy to talk about that.
3: Well, yeah, I know that I think you put your finger on it, because, of course, The vaccine, we've seen very clearly that it is giving very good protection to those who have taken it. And even those that are getting infected seem to be getting less severe illness and uh, not going to the hospital at all. Or if they are uh, potentially not going to the ICU and if they are, you know, ultimately not dying. So what are we seeing so far in terms of the impact uh, on on hospitals? Uh, Are we seeing an encouraging trend there at all here in the Bay Area?
0: Yes, we are. So let's let's what you just said is is the key point about this, right? So what used to happen with increasing cases in the Bay Area, California, anywhere? We used to see like clockwork increase in hospitalizations that would follow, and then unfortunately increase in deaths. And so what did that make us do? When we saw increase in cases, there were shutdowns, there were lockdowns. It had to happen. We had to keep people away from each other because those cases were gonna be followed by hospitalizations. What happens in the context of vaccination? Well, as you just said, it is the unvaccinated who are getting hospitalized. It's a it's a it's a variable rate. Um, for example, LA County reported two days ago that everyone in their particular sort of county hospitals. I don't know about private hospitals. They were reporting on the county hospitals. Every single person admitted for COVID nineteen and had severe COVID nineteen was an unvaccinated person, hundred percent. Here in the Bay Area, would say it's about ninety nine point nine seven percent. So, as you just said. There have been a few people with breakthrough infections who are vaccinated in the Bay Area, um, but they're usually released quickly and do well because the infection is more mild if it's breakthrough infection. Um, after uh, vaccination. So it's a completely different equation. Are we overwhelmed in the barrier area with hospitalizations? Not at all. Um, In fact, I can clearly tell you that at San Francisco General, we have five to six people in the hospital all unvaccinated with COVID-19. So it is a completely different
3: phenomenon than what happened before. All right, just going to reintroduce you real quick. Uh, This is KCBS In Depth speaking with Dr. Monica Gandhi, an infectious disease physician and professor of medicine at UC San Francisco and talking about the ongoing spike in cases in the Bay Area and elsewhere. So now on to probably the biggest news of this past week, the announcement from a number of Bay Area health officers that they are now taking the step of urging residents to mask up once again in uh, indoor public places. Uh, you know, so just as we've all gotten used to going maskless in the grocery store, uh, now we're being told those masks uh, should go back on. And uh, I, I suppose we're just kind of back in this, this familiar, confusing place where uh, directives are changing pretty quickly and we're hearing different directives from different health officials. Uh, so Dr. Monica Gandhi, uh, just curious for your thoughts on how us... Average Bay Area resident should be making sense of all this. Um, How should we be thinking at this moment of uh, the level of risk that we're facing, you know, especially for the majority of uh, vaccinated adults? And how should we be thinking about the precautions that we should be taking at this point?
0: Yeah, I mean, this is a very confusing moment. There's been many confusing moments in the pandemic. You know, one thing I personally am taking my cue from is uh, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Walensky's uh, update with the White House Task Force just on the 16th of July, so Friday. And they were also asked directly about this question, is the CDC gonna put back masks for the vaccinated? And they were really clear that um, they're really following the hospitalizations and not the cases anymore. And Dr. Fauci showed um, slides from Israel and the UK that when places open, absolutely, cases will go up um, like they did in California and various regions, but that the delinking, this kind of decoupling from hospitalizations have been seen in all three of these more highly vaccinated places. I call California a more highly vaccinated place like UK and Israel. And he showed that decoupling on a graph today. So. That's why um, the strategy, at least, of the Biden administration and the NIH and the CDC is to track hospitalizations, not cases anymore, absolutely figure out who's in the hospital, who's vaccinated and not. We need that data every day from a municipality. And um, right now, the CDC is tracking that 99.4% of those who are in the hospital are unvaccinated. I know that's true across the Bay Area because I work in a hospital. And that's and really work on vaccinating the unvaccinated. So that's why the California DPH came up with a pretty strong statement today on the 16th. They were writing to reporters um, saying that we are going to follow the CDC guidance on this. And now we're kind of sitting in this confusing position. But I would just do whatever the store tells you to.
3: (laughs) Well, that's (laughs) always good advice. Um, uh, We we should add that um, health officials highlighted in their release, you know, explaining these new masking recommendations that, part of the rationale here is that it's obviously difficult for stores to verify who's vaccinated and who is not. So making a universal requirement um, just makes it that much easier to make sure that we've got widespread compliance here. So uh, to some extent, the the rationale here is as much about behavior as anything else. But to your point, I mean, it, it really seems like you were suggesting that Given the extent of vaccination at this point, um, and and how much that changes the dynamics of this pandemic, uh, the old measurements, the the old measuring sticks that we've used to track this pandemic, you know, case counts, positivity rates, they they don't mean exactly what they meant before, and uh, well, it's because we're in somewhat uncharted territory. But I, I suppose that's a good thing in some ways, you know, because broadly speaking, it seems like better territory.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's really what the CDC and the White House Task Force is messaging to us. And, you know, where they're getting that information is also other countries, everyone's talking and working together who have the ability to get the vaccines. And seeing that that this is a new phase of the pandemic response where cases are not reliably Uh, accompanied by increased hospitalizations, which would lead to lockdowns, which we had to do last year in 2020 because we didn't have the vaccines. What's happening now is cases are um, uh, reliably leading to hospitalizations in the unvaccinated. And that's why that is the US strategy um, and why most states, I haven't seen another state yet, uh, change their guidance from the CDC guidance, except for California counties.
3: Yeah. Well, on that point of uh, vaccination, it, it, we have for, for, for months now, we've been seeing the vaccination rates declining week by week, and we're just getting a fraction of the number of people now that we were uh, at, at the peak of the vaccination rollout. Uh, what is your expectation in terms of how much farther this vaccine rollout might go? Uh, how, I, I know that a lot of people are working very hard to make the case and make it as accessible as possible. How successful do you think those efforts might be?
0: You know, I have been very impressed with, for example, San Francisco, who has worked really hard in Latinx communities, uh, for example, and we have had higher rates of uptake in Latinx communities than many other municipalities uh, across. Them.
3: And even higher than among uh, the Caucasian demographic, interestingly.
0: Exactly. And so it is this is this is San Francisco's strength. This is what it's known for is community based messaging and community based efforts. The second um, a place where I think is sort of incredible work is being done is in homeless populations and um, and in the Tenderloin and in shelters and in places where there's just door-to-door of shelters and getting people vaccinated. Um, but that isn't true elsewhere. And the way to think about how we do this, and I actually keep on thinking, this is the slodge, this is the hard work, this is The community-based messaging, the community-based going, I mean, I know that President Biden had some controversy when he said door-to-door, but what he meant by door-to-door is this is the one-on-one conversations with people. Getting it in doctor's offices, for example, I've had um, several people change their mind about seven after I've had a long, hour-long conversation with them about Mm. things. It's that one-on-one conversations, uh, pharmacies also talking. You have to give people time off work that's paid because why would someone lose their pay um, to go get vaccinated? And also you have to give people time off work if they have side effects from the vaccine. This is going to come into our conversations more.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So a lot more conversations to be had uh, around all these issues and just uh, really a very new phase of this pandemic that we're going to have to come to grips with. Helping us come to grips with it so far has been Dr. Monica Gandhi, once again, an infectious disease physician and professor of medicine at UC San Francisco. Dr. Monica Gandhi, always good to have you on.
0: Thank you very much.
3: You're listening to KCBS In Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today on the program, we're getting a handle on this latest chapter of the COVID pandemic as the vaccine rollout slows and cases begin to spike once again. Up next, we're going to talk about one group that's particularly vulnerable at this moment because they can't be vaccinated. That is, children under the age of 12 who, of course, can't be vaccinated because no vaccines have yet been approved for that age range. So to hear more about the risks facing younger children, I spoke recently with Dr. Yvonne Maldonado, professor of pediatrics and epidemiology at Stanford University School of Medicine. Here's that conversation. Dr. Yvonne Maldonado, welcome to KCBS In Depth.
2: Thank you so much, Keith.
3: So let's get up to date on what the science has to say so far about how risky this disease is for children. Of course, that's been uh, a big question throughout the course of the pandemic. And one of the the messages that we've been getting from health experts is that young children, especially young children, are at much lower risk of serious infection from COVID-19 than uh, adults but uh, a year and a half has gone by. We've learned a lot more. Has that basic finding more or less held up? Uh, Of course, keeping in mind that uh, less risk does not mean no risk. So
2: absolutely. We have learned a lot in the last year. So uh, some of the basic facts that are still that we still know to be true are that children can definitely become infected. uh, They can become sick and they can die from this disease. And we still um, have the same understanding of the risk to children being lower than adults. So obviously we've seen uh, over 600,000 adults in the United States die from COVID with millions of cases in adults. However, what we've seen as well since last year, um, uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics has been tracking pediatric cases in the United States. And what they have seen is over 4 million children have now been documented to have COVID-19 disease representing about 22% or so of all the cases in the US. So not the majority, but certainly a a major share. There are almost 20,000 hospitalizations related to COVID-19 in children under 18 with uh, over 300 deaths. And some people think maybe as high as 600 deaths during the pandemic. Now, while we think those numbers are relatively low uh, compared to adults, this still represents a large number of hospitalizations and deaths in children who are generally healthy. So um, for children under 18, except for the newborn period, this represents the 10th most common cause of death and one of the major causes of hospitalization in kids. So there's a lot to be thankful for in the sense that children are relatively spared, but it is still an important cause of serious illness in children.
3: Mm. Once again, speaking with Dr. Yvonne Maldonado with Stanford University School of Medicine. And sticking with the topic of risk for just one more second, I know that another big open question is the degree to which children are vulnerable to long COVID, to uh, those COVID symptoms sticking around and just, you know, that lingering illness and sense of fatigue, even once the virus itself is no longer present in the body. How much have we learned there about the vulnerability of children?
2: We uh, are just starting to track that. There have been a number of NIH, the federal uh, uh, network studies that have been set up uh, in the last few months to try to identify uh, both children and adults who've had long-term symptoms. And we really don't have a very good sense of what's going on with children other than anecdotal reports here and there. But we do know that there are longer-term symptoms that can occur in children as well as adults. And In adults, some estimates are on the order of 20 to 50% of people can have lingering symptoms of one kind or another, meaning uh, brain fog, as they call it, meaning decreased cognitive um, abilities, some people with decreased taste and smell, chronic fatigue, um, and those kinds of symptoms. And um, those are actually in the process of, those studies are in the process of being funded now in children and adults.
3: Mm. And, you know, not, of course, not to be alarmist here, but just to really put this concern uh, into fine relief, we are talking about, in some cases, neurological damage from long COVID.
2: Yeah, absolutely. There have been studies looking at uh, MRIs, uh, you know, brain imaging from adults who have had COVID and lo- uh, long after they've had COVID. And there's evidence of continued inflammation and um Uh, areas of uh, brain deficits in those people. Now, whether those are reversible or not, it's hard to say. I would imagine a lot of that could be reversible, but we just don't know. And um, it's still early in the course, unfortunately, of this uh, long-term follow-up. Lots going on with this virus that we still need to understand. So it's not a benign cold or flu-like illness.
3: Yeah, yeah. So a lot to keep track of right there. Uh, Real quick, reminding anybody who's just joining us, this is KCBS In Depth. I'm Keith Mancone right now speaking with Dr. Yvonne Maldonado, professor of pediatrics and epidemiology with Stanford University School of Medicine. We're talking about the surging cases of COVID-19 throughout the country and what it could mean for the largest group of people who remain unvaccinated, that being children. So, Now that we've talked about some of those risks and uh, unfortunately probably uh, scared some parents, let's talk about what could be done to mitigate those risks. And obviously the highest on that list is getting as many people vaccinated as possible because the more people who are vaccinated, the harder it is for that virus to ever reach an unvaccinated child.
2: Absolutely. Uh, It turns out that you can actually create almost a cocoon around unvaccinated individuals. And uh, we know, for example, in school settings, um, we do have a fairly good uh, year's worth of data around some schools that were able to be open. And we know that schools are not areas where outbreaks will occur. And that's because when schools are open, uh, teachers and staff are being vaccinated. Uh, if children 12 and older can be vaccinated, that is also useful. And masking really works. Now, we're also seeing that there are more data for schools that suggests that even uh, distancing, um, of three feet is, uh, is actually very good and effective at preventing infections. So three feet is a really important marker because it's really pretty much the distance between one desk and another desk. So if you can distance the children as much as possible that way, then you're in good shape. Certainly keeping the teachers at three feet from the kids is fine. And if you can't really keep them apart, uh, all the time at three feet you still have the mask for two years kids two years of age and older so that will keep people from transmitting to one another and we are not seeing uh outbreaks occurring in schools when masking and distancing are taking place in the setting of also vaccinations for those who are eligible
3: yeah let's speak for a moment directly to those uh, parents that have unvaccinated kids and are in this weird space where half the family is vaccinated and half the family, the younger members are unvaccinated and they're trying to get back into normal life and they're trying to navigate this quickly reopening world. And There's still just a lot of uncertainty for what is safe and what's not and where it's okay to bring their kids and and what precautions they should be taking. What should those parents be keeping first and foremost in their minds? What are the sorts of activities you would say really should have a little bit more caution right now? And uh, where where should they be going to, you know, uh, find that leisure time, that outdoor time where it's available?
2: Well, I think the good news here is very similar to what we talked about last year, last summer which is that if you're outdoors, um, there's even more evidence now that being outdoors is really a good way to prevent transmission. And a lot of that has to do with uh, dispersion of the virus away from individuals because of the outdoor ventilation. Uh, And uh, so the risk um, in an outdoor setting is very low. Uh, And in the summertime, families can travel, they can even do local uh, trips um, and uh, weekend outings uh, safely. Uh, without having to worry about uh, high risk for transmission for those unvaccinated members of their family. Um, what I've seen uh, myself having uh, gone on weekend trips uh, in, the, in California is a lot of families with younger children uh, either all being masked or else just the younger children being masked. And I think there's you know, a lot of uh, ways to be creative with the kids to make sure that they don't feel excluded from say the rest of the family There are things that can be done and the risks are actually quite low. I find that the highest risk um, uh, that, when we're seeing infections in children and actually, by the way, adults, most of these are occurring after people have gone to events where they're indoors with crowded, in crowded spaces where they're indoors. Um, And that, or even outdoors with very crowded um, quarters. So if you're, for example, at a concert or at an amusement park where you're sitting very close to other people without masks and that's that tends to be more of the risk for for infection.
3: Well, we only have a couple of minutes left uh, speaking with Dr. Yvonne Maldonado with Stanford University School of Medicine, but I do want to squeeze in a little bit of this uh, confusing issue around the uh, mask rules in the classroom. Uh, We got some very confusing directives earlier this past week with state officials at first seeming to be laying down some uh, pretty strict orders, uh, essentially telling schools that they had to turn away any student who refuses to wear masks in class, but uh, officials later clarified that they intended uh, to give some discretion to local districts. Uh, to carry out the rules. So uh, as we said, a bit of a confusing rollout there, but uh, putting the politics of all that aside, what does the science have to say about the importance of masking up in the classroom? I suppose you've already addressed this a couple of times, but uh, let's take it on directly.
2: Well, yeah, so let's start with the science piece. First of all, masks definitely work. We know that there are studies that have shown that if you mask teachers and staff, and in some studies also if you mask children, you are going to have lower risks of transmission. That accompanied by uh, three feet distancing really works. And the nice thing is, as I mentioned earlier, if you compare three feet to six feet in schools, it appears that three feet is just as good as six feet. So we do know that masks work. Now, the question about the guidance, and we'll be hearing more from other organizations that weigh in is really this is a matter of how do you operationalize masking? And I think what the state probably realized is it's, it's very hard to lay down one law for the entire state of California, which is almost 40 million people. Mm-hmm. And so give, we need to give each school district the ability to make their own individual rulings, uh, depending on what their local capacity is. So um, whether they exclude children or not, I think uh, really should be up to the individual school districts. And it makes it a lot less uh, a lot more palatable for families and teachers if you're not being as proscriptive at the state level. So barring children just sounds difficult. I think it make, it leaves a bad feeling to say that about kids and I do think that we want to be uh, involved more with a carrot than a stick and I think that may have been uh, that second approach the state took.
3: Yeah. All right. Well, we are going to be, as you said, learning more about that in uh, the weeks to come as we approach the beginning of the fall school term. Last point that I want to get to you, something that could really be a huge step back towards normality, that would be if we got approval for a vaccine for children under the age of 12. Uh, We've been speaking with you in particular about this over the last year. How close are we to getting to that point. I'm, I'm hearing fall might be sort of a, a, a date range to expect.
2: Yeah, we're getting about as close as we've ever been, which is really exciting. The data we here at Stanford and other colleagues around the country are involved with some of the pediatric trials. The vaccine trials are going extremely well. Again, I wanna remind people that we have given over a third of a billion doses of vaccines to people 12 and over in the in the US alone. So we know that these vaccines now are safe and effective. That's something we didn't know a year ago. And the studies that we're doing with kids now are being informed by those data. And we're finding out that the studies are going quite well. Families are very interested and excited to be part of these trials. And we're hoping that there should be data available by this fall. But realistically, I would expect that um, full implementation might not happen till later in the fall or winter with the full expectation, I hope if all goes well, that by beginning of 2022, there might be vaccine uh, approvals, uh, either EUA or full approvals for children as young as six months of age by the beginning of 2022. So I think we're heading into a good place. I would say that last December, we started with adults and got, you know, really were able to take a big bite out of this pandemic and hopefully one year later, we'll be in the same place for the rest of the population.
3: All right. So a lot to look forward to. And uh, we're just going to have to have our fingers crossed for now. We have been speaking to Dr. Yvonne Maldonado, once again, professor of pediatrics and epidemiology at Stanford University School of Medicine. Dr. Yvonne Maldonado, always good to have you on.
2: Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure.
3: Thank you all for listening for KCBS and In Depth. I'm Keith Manconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.
1: T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours